Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When Nancy Calder returned to Childers in 1987 to lead the council's cultural programs, one of the first projects she took on was setting up the local art gallery. And that's how she met Sam DeMauro. He was a lecturer in Brisbane, and um, it was through having exhibitions of his in the original gallery that I knew Sam, and he's a perfectionist. A few hours with Sam later, and I'd certainly agree with that. He knew the area well. His mother was from Childers, and by the time of the fire, he'd been exhibiting his work in the local gallery for more than a decade. They were familiar with my work and the way that I worked. They were familiar with the essence of what I do and because I'm tending to go back in time to bring something forward. As you heard in the previous episode, Council faced some significant challenges in acquiring the building after the fire, but once that hurdle had been cleared, things started to move fairly quickly. We had to decide what was going to happen with the palace into the longer term, And to that end, we wanted to discuss that with a number of the the families of both survivors and those that had lost their life. In a few months after the fire, I took the opportunity to travel to Europe and speak to some of the families over there at the behest of some of the governments. And gradually, a picture emerged on what we could do to put in place a suitable memorial to honour those young lives lost. There just seemed to be a general consensus that if we're going to have a memorial... It should be in the building, it shouldn't be in the park across the road. And the Mayor hadn't forgotten the promise he'd made at the memorial service just days after the fire when he committed to developing a fitting tribute which celebrated the lives of the victims in consultation with their families. And that's how the memorial came about. We had two ideas. One was a painting depicting a work scene. The other was uh, putting in place a memorial where the parents contributed uh, their slides and that as they saw their children. There was robust discussion. Some wanted one, others wanted the other. You know, we we had to discuss it with our own governments. We had to discuss it with seven or eight different countries and and their representatives, with survivors, their families, uh, with the deceased families. A huge amount of work went into uh, consultation. We had to discuss it with our own community as well. In the end, they decided to go with both. Sam DeMauro's idea was a giant glass wall with 15 light boxes, each one filled with photos printed on glass slides to create a montage that takes you on a journey of that person's life. It was essentially putting a modern spin on an old classic. At the uni, there's a photography department, and uh, this idea of having an image in glass I was sure could work because when we went to the movies as little kids, 
those slides, those advertisements that they show before the film, they were all on glass plates. So I said, somewhere. And they said, look, you know, there's not many people that do it anymore. He rang around and found a company in Melbourne that could do the job. And this young fella said, uh, yeah, yeah, we do it. It's like your windscreens on your cars. We print onto the film that goes between the two pieces of glass. And uh, he said, um, we'll send you up some samples. And so he came up and worked in my office with me for a couple of weeks, I suppose. And he created a box and we had public consultation. We invited the public to come in, talk to Sam, have a look at the idea and the concept of the box going into a wall and all this sort of thing. And everybody thought it was marvellous. So Sam got the go-ahead and, and away he went. The compromise was that if we were having that glass wall, we'd still like a painting. That proved a little bit more problematic in finding an artist that could do that. Nancy knew of highly acclaimed Sydney portrait artist Joe Pilatus. She'd won the prestigious Doug Moran National Portrait Prize and had been commissioned to paint the then Prime Minister John Howard for the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra. So her work was as good as it gets. They flew to Sydney to meet with her and signed her on the spot. And then she came up to Bundaberg and I took her around all the farms so she could see that she didn't even know where zucchini came from or an avocado. She knew this was she bought it at the supermarket. So I took her out to farms and she could see and she took millions of photographs of how things grew and so when you look at the memorial portrait, you can see where she studied all that and the leaves on the trees behind the group of kids. I spent a morning with Joe and her son Guy at her house earlier this year. They pulled out two boxes full of her research into the project and it was a fascinating insight into how a master of their craft went about her work. Her attention to detail is impeccable. When you look at it, are you really proud of that, that painting? Um, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of work and it was very emotional, you know, sort of all, all the way through. There are pencil sketches of the painting's layout and a folder for each of the victims containing photos supplied by the families so Joe could replicate their image. Joe uh, obviously only had photos that the families provided to, to work on and and Joe was quite clear that if she was going to give a true likeness, it had to be a true likeness to that photo. So she, she wasn't going to take the photo and then alter the, the body stance or something like that. So uh, it, it is a fabulous piece of art and obviously had a lot of emotional impact on Joe herself as well. The key brief was to capture them smiling in happier times working on the farm or, as Bill describes it, a typical scene out in the fields where a lot of the kids are gathering, sit on buckets and their plastic bags and water and have their morning tea together and chit-chat. That was the hardest part, sort of working out to get all the people in a, a position so that it would work as a, yeah, as a as picture, a group as a group portrait. 
It is a stunning representation of the Childers' backpacker life. The painting was was beautiful, and yeah, again, drawing those 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 different people together to that one location, and they were all doing pretty much the same thing at the time. Yeah, the the way it knits those people's lives together is quite special. Yes, and I got I got a big photograph of that that painting. Yes, lovely with them with them all on there, you know. And there's Nappy as she as she was, you know. That was a blessing. Sam's concept was a little more abstract and a little harder to get across the line. Pitching an idea for something that no one had ever seen anything like before. You, as an artist know you're going to make it work. But it's convincing others that it's going to translate meaning in the end. And did you hit some roadblocks? I did. I hit a few roadblocks. There were the Conservatives who said, we really just need a mural. And there were those that said, look, this idea's got legs, but you're going to have to make it work. We'll give you what you need but you've got to make it work. And so they put their trust in me and I, and I, I really come up with the, what I thought was a, a, a worthwhile solution at the end. The original proposal was a floating wall in the middle of the room. Now that got rejected, so Sam had to put his thinking cap on. He landed on the idea of a 7.7 metre long pane of sandblasted glass with 15 windows running horizontally configured in a slightly staggered formation to replicate the shape of the main street of Childers. It acted like a fake wall of sorts with each window containing a 30 centimetre deep light box with eight photo slide insert slots. A light was set behind each box to beam through the transparent montage of photos. The journey boxes were in relation to them as someone from a country or from another family, and this is who their family was. Their connection to these other boxes, these other journey boxes, was the fact that they belonged to one global family of backpacking. So hence this one big piece of glass and these people are placed in that glass. The big piece of glass is holding them together as a family. They each belonged to a different family in another part of the world. What I liked about the memorial wall is that it wasn't us telling people how to remember their children. The parents all made a contribution towards uh, those boxes. It was their contribution. It portrayed the life of their child as they lived it. And I think that gave them some closure in as much as that they could contribute to that. If you look at the boxes, they're all so different. And I'll point to Jolly Van Velden's memorial box. There are only pictures of her in Australia. And meeting uh, her father and mother and brother in, in Uteric, I, I said to them, your box depicting Jolly is so different from everyone else's. There are only pictures of her in Australia. And their comment to me was, she was so happy in your country, that's how we want to remember her. So it does show how different people look at their children in different ways. The problem with great ideas, though, 
is sometimes they're the hardest to execute, committing to an almost eight-metre-long pane of glass that can endure some pretty intense sandblasting and be thick enough it won't be flexible or bow is one thing. Actually finding it and a company prepared to work with it is another. The only option was Japan and putting it on a ship. And oh, they needed two just in case one broke. And then we found a company in Western Australia that had the piece of glass that we wanted, the exact size, that they had bought out from Japan for another job that they did, an architectural building. And they then had that spare and they said, look, we've got this, you can buy it for this particular price and, uh, and you'll have to ship it over. So they then put it on a semi-trailer and took it to Sydney. When they took it to Sydney, then I was able to then go down and work on the sandblasting. Went down to Sydney, for the sandblasting, they'd set it all up. They couldn't put sandblast inside because it was too big, it couldn't fit in the factory. So they sandblasted it outside. They got it all ready, went down. They came for the sandblasting. They couldn't do it, it was too windy. Back to Brisbane. Come down the following weekend. Okay, right, so we've got these pieces masked up where the boxes are gonna go and everything else is gonna be sandblasted. We have to tape up for this highway. And I said, no, 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 I don't want a sharp edge. I want it to feather in and feather out. So it's got to be very, very freehand and loose. Otherwise, it stands out, and it's not to stand out. It needs to be, oh, and what's that? And that sort of element of surprise. So they said, oh, no, sorry, mate, we're not going to do it. (laughs) We're looking at... I don't know what it was, something like $60,000 piece of glass. These guys are sort of, and I'm saying, no, I want it done like this. And they're saying, no, no, we've got to mask it up. And I'm saying, no, no, it's got to to be freehand. I said, how about if I get behind the glass and you follow my finger? Finally, I convinced them and they chose, they decided to, to follow that. It came out perfect. Absolutely spot on. It was put on a semi-trailer and driven more than 1,200 kilometres north to Childers. The semi-trailer was parked behind the building to start off with and the poor bugger was there all night. And he said, one of the conditions of my bringing this up was that I could not leave this semi for one minute. He said, I slept underneath the semi last night (laughs) on the way up and then when I got here as well. So, so they were the hiccups, but we managed to, to get over it. The next day, Childers took a collective deep breath as the world's most talked-about piece of glass was hoisted above the palace on a crane and lowered in. I remember standing out the street watching it come in. Like, how, you, would have, you would have watched it too. We took sheets off the roof, uh, closed the highway... <laughs> And I can remember thinking, I think there was only about 12 or 14 little suction cups bringing it up over the leopard trees and through the roof, and I can remember thinking, Jesus, I hope that doesn't drop. (laughs) But uh, they positioned it very well in there, and uh, that was a very large piece of glass, uh, strategically placed. How did you feel when it was coming in on on a crane? Uh, I don't think I'll ever forget that day. Uh, The roof roof wasn't on the palace. The National Highway had to get uh, blocked. 
and this giant crane lifted this huge piece of solid glass through the roof, through the rafters, so fairly limited space to, to squeeze it through. Uh, got it through, obviously no cracks, no breakages, and as it went into place, I turned to Sam and I said, oh, Sam, they've got it around the wrong way. And it was a joke, but you had to make you know, jokes of fairly serious situations to get through. How nervous were you that process, but, you know... <laughs> Paul, the night before, I did not sleep for one minute, and next morning... Yeah, that was the day that the glass was going to be lowered in. And I rang Kim Schuller, who was the architect of the project, and I said, Kim, I'm worried about this piece of glass. I said, it is so heavy. It's, I think, one point something tonne of glass. I said, are the floors going to be able to sustain this? So, you know, he said, Sam, it would take several of those pieces of glass. <laughs> and at that point I thought... And I've been worried all night thinking, surely. But, you know, we've had engineers work it all out and everything. It's just that last bit of panic. You know, did I do this? Did I... What's going to happen? It's going to be my fault if it doesn't. On October 26, 2002, two years and four months after the fire, the palace was officially reopened as a memorial to the 15 victims. They worked together, they played together, and above all, they laughed, lived and loved together. Bill Trevor spoke. Acting Prime Minister John Anderson and Queensland Premier Peter Beattie attended on behalf of the federal and state governments. A number of survivors flew back to Australia to be part of the ceremony, but this was about the victims and their families. Adam Rowland's stepfather, Steve Todd, spoke on their behalf. There are still 13 children. It is our belief that justice will not be done until Long is formally made accountable for their deaths. Frank Slark, the father of West Australian twins Kelly and Stacey, penned a moving poem to his girls. Unbelievable, inconceivable, that you are no longer in our fold. We feel your love within us, but there is nothing we can hold. There wasn't a dry eye inside or among the public viewing area set up out on the street. It was an emotionally charged weekend. Council preempted this by unveiling the memorial to the victims' families the night before. That's probably the most emotional time in my life uh, to see the reactions there. I can remember one girl throwing herself on the floor and curling herself up into a little fetal ball and rocking backwards and forwards as she sobbed. Uh, The raw emotion there on that night was unbelievable. I remember it so vividly because I was standing down near the glass wall and as the families came up the stairs, there was just this outpouring of emotion. Those sort of noises you never forget, so absolute wailing, some people fell to the floor. And my immediate thought when I was listening to this, this emotion was, oh, God, what have we done? Have we made the right decision? You know, because it was a response to something which I now, you know, completely understand was was natural, but at the time all I could think was, oh, we've got it wrong. Oh, it was was quite... I I found it quite overwhelming. It was... I I think it was the glass... the glass wall that... Yeah. 
that got me most. Because they were her personal items. So, so yeah, but snippets of her life, but also of everybody else's. All these people's identities were tied up and tied together with childers. The, the glass wall gave you that opportunity to see that, that, that these people came from such diverse backgrounds, lifestyles, countries, languages, cultures. And it was just, just overwhelming to see such a broad spread of people in such a small, like just, just in one place. Yeah. Like, brought home. They had lives. They had families. They, had, you know, they had loved ones. The same as same as us. Actually, they were the same as us. Mm. There were tears everywhere, and then all of a sudden, there was quiet, and then there was laughter, and they were pointing it to each other and saying, "Look at this, you know. Look at this." And they talked about one of the Western Australian girls. In the portrait, you'll see she's sitting playing with her feet. And the mother said to me, she has always had a foot fetish. So you captured her right to the nth degree. The one in the front, sitting on the esky, I think, if I remember. Yep. And, mm. that, and that must be lovely to hear. Oh, it was. It was for us because when you do these things, you think, God, I hope this is going to, you know, people are going... The families, because it was so difficult to be in touch with them all the time. Yeah. But no, it worked out very well, and they were all happy. And once we knew they were all happy, we were happy. From us, from a local point of view, we had told them what we were going to do, but now we were showing it to them. What if they didn't like it? We're about to introduce it to the world the next day. So we were on high emotion and edge. Fortunately, they all came forward and said, we're delighted uh, that you've honoured our children in this way. And I think that was part of the success of involving the families along the way. Especially with the painting, you you see them in the field, you know, uh, uh, they almost come alive and you almost want to tear them out and put them back in the room again that's what I felt at the moment that's why we gave them the private viewing first so that they weren't going to have it in front of hundreds of people the next day so they could have time on their own with the memorial and with the painting and they were there for four or five hours I suppose in all and they just sat around and talked and then they started laughing and look at this and look at that so that was that was the best thing we could have done you guys obviously had a an inkling that there would be a lot of grief in the room but the magnitude of it did it go above and beyond even what you guys expected it could be (sighs) we knew there was going to be a hell of a lot of grief but the degree you don't know and it just happens but when you get all the different families who haven't met before and when they all start bonding together you think well we must have done something right here <laughs> there are two things that live together but in isolation of one another you know and it that really 
came to mind when I saw the reaction of the parents on the preview night, where they gravitated straight towards the painting and then moved over to, to the glass wall. And I, I think that probably still continues to happen with people who visit the, the memorial today. You know, they'll, they'll see the painting, they'll say, oh, well, it's a nice big glass wall, look at those lovely colours in behind the glass, because you don't, you know, it almost looks like a stained glass window, the little journey boxes from a distance. And that whole thing is based around that principle, that idea of I wanted people to experience a journey. And the journey was the images that the parents sent. All except for one. When the memorial was opened in October 2002, there still wasn't much known about Moroccan Moulay Luluai Kamal. To give him a presence on the wall, Sam dug out some old photos of his travels through Morocco in the 1980s. Then in August 2004, almost two years later, a lady walked into the palace. She came in and um, she said, oh, I've come to have a look at this box and we got chatting and she said, there's not much in it. And I said, well, we don't have anything. We weren't able to get anything to put in the box. And she said, I think I can help you with that. And she supplied all these different things to Sam. And, and uh, so that was ticking the last box, really. It was Moulay's sister-in-law. Sam commissioned the new tiles for the light box. Must have been nice to have that feel like it was complete because there would have been a void there for you not being able to fully represent this this guy, I'd imagine, and then to be able to have that image and feel like it was complete must have been a, a fulfilling yes. emotion. Yes, it was, Paul. It was, um, you know, I never for one moment thought we'd ever find a picture because it was a fait complete. We just cannot get a picture of this man. So the fact that someone was interested enough to sort of come forward and say, well, look, you know, I know this fellow, despite what this fellow may or may not have done um, in his life, um, she was still quite happy for that person's image to be up there. So for me it was, yeah, an absolute um, sense of closure to the, to the fabrication of the memorial. It was almost like the last piece of a puzzle in a way. How did that feel? It was. It was good because everybody who came in, and of course we've had millions of visitors through there, wanted to know why the other boxes were so detailed and his wasn't. So it was it was like the last piece of the puzzle, as you say. Was, it, was there and an element of completion to it for you? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that's what Sam says too. Felt like, felt like that was closure on the project. That's right, because we were all... We're trying to work out what we could do, but we felt it was complete then. Deep down within you, you would have felt like you had a responsibility to get it right, I imagine. Oh, absolutely, because we didn't want to upset any of the parents. They had lost their young ones, so the last thing you want to do is to cause them any further distress. So we were very, very careful about how we went about all that. It wasn't the only time Sam had to do a dash to Childers to make some adjustments to the feature wall. 
Remember the palace is set on the National Highway, and I mean right on it. So there's all sorts of traffic passing by. What hadn't been factored in was any structural movement that goes with that, especially during harvest season and with the mining boom just kicking off in surrounding towns. The vibration from that machinery, although it being very, very subtle, just kicked the fine-tuning out a tiny bit so that the, the journey boxes, because they were floating behind the glass wall on brackets that were mounted to the superstructure of the building, because of the whole vibration of the building, that slight adjustment moved them by about one to two millimetres. So any movement just knocks them slightly off sync. Eventually, they came up with a local solution and in more recent years, they've applied some brackets to ensure that's no longer a problem. Now, after the opening of the memorial on that afternoon in October 2002, the families retreated to the cultural centre for a lunch and social gathering. It seemed appropriate. It's where their sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, had been mourned by the survivors in the days following the fire. It's where a memorial service was held and 15 candles were lit in their honour. Bringing everyone together was the release they needed. And the afternoon eventually dissolved into this, um, the world's got talent type quest, you know. So the, the Japanese um, parents, they got up and sang a song in Japanese and there was a Welsh man there, he got up and he absolutely belted out a couple of magnificent songs. What a voice that man had. Then you had uh, Bill Trevor and uh, the Deputy Mayor, Tony Riccardi, doing Two Little Boys and riding around broomsticks in the cultural centre. So it was it was quite hilarious, but um, uh, it was a high note on which to end what had been a fairly emotional weekend. People talk very fondly about you getting up and singing and really having the room in the palm of your hand. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My mate got uh, Kelly's father, got drunk as an owl. Yeah, it was a great afternoon. You switched off, you know, uh, sadness there. Eh? But at uh, the same time, there was a happy sort of feeling, you know, you know, sort of embrace the sadness. It's not allowed in Asia to, to show your emotions in public. And uh, he was singing this song and he was Japanese. And he was singing this song and he just let his tears pour down. And it was the most beautiful thing I ever saw. For some reason, he, he could let go at that moment and uh, let his emotion go. And, uh, and he, he was really happy afterwards. And that was a beautiful sight to see. It was a really special evening and uh, just being a part of it was really special. Thousands from all over the world continue to visit the Palace Hostel Memorial in Childers each year. A new hostel facility was built on land behind the existing site, but the past two decades have seen a new demographic of guests as people walk in to see Joe's incredible painting, Sam's iconic glass wall, and to take a moment to pay their respects to the Palace 15. It's heartening to see that at the time of the memorial and even now, people have 
infused love back into that building. And the memorial was fitting without being verbose and over the top. And I think that summarises just how the locals, through the fallout, carried themselves with dignity and were determined to get their hometown that they love so much back on their feet. And that's what they've done. How's it feel talking about it? I live with it every day of my life and uh, there's probably not a day in those last 20 years when I haven't reflected in some way. Sometimes uh, more poignant than others. Uh, as I say, you know, perhaps it's just me, I'm an emotional person, but uh, I can go for months walking up down the street and yeah, it's a palace. Other times the tears just burst out of the eyes. But I'm very, very proud of, of what I've been able to achieve in conjunction with some very, very good people in our community, in our organisations, our fireys, ambulance, council staff, and community citizens involved in Rotary, Apex, and all those, CWA, all those organisations out there, and just good, honest citizens that came up and said, what can I do to help? Just tell me. We can all help by continuing to remember and honour the victims of the Palace Hostel fire by visiting the Memorial in Childers, which is run by the Bundaberg Regional Council, who have been such great supporters of this podcast. Thank you to the Seven Network for access to their library and archives, and to Joel and Sam for sharing their stories for this episode. We are so fortunate that Joel and her family have kept all the records of her work. And Sam has been every bit as thorough. He pulled out several giant journals with every thought, idea, detail, conversation, press clippings and emails. It really is a fascinating archive that captures the narrative of his work. Please make sure you tell your family and friends about the podcast. It was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran, edited, sound designed and composed by Zoltan Fecho. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.